0: A reading this morning, um, it was for 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6, I'm going to back up into chapter 3 a little bit to give some more context. So I'll begin with chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 6. <clears throat> now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, "Let let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Be God. <clears throat> Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. And strength to our lives as we love and serve others in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be here this morning, be back with y'all. Um, happy New Year. But more importantly, happy eighth day of Christmas. In the secular calendar, today marks a brand new year, a fresh start, a new beginning a chance to accomplish all the things you intended to do last year. However, in the church calendar, we are not celebrating a new year, but are celebrating the movement from Christmas Day, which is the birth of Jesus, to Epiphany, the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, I'm not attacking New Year's as a holiday. It's perfectly fine. If you want to stay up to midnight for fireworks, then go for it. Last night, we celebrated with the Europeans around 8 o'clock, and then we hit the sack. But have you ever thought about the two holidays and just how they represent two different mindsets on the world? The secular Christians, or the the secular Christmas, I should say, begins the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year, kicking off a month of consumer indulgence. Christmas music, Christmas lights, Christmas decorations, Christmas treats, Christmas movies, Christmas sales, Santa, elves, reindeer, Jesus... Snowmen, whatever else will appear to appeal to our nostalgia and get us to open our wallets. This builds until Christmas Day, when it climaxes in all the presents, all the meals, all the celebration, and then ends. The music stops, the decorations come down, the wrapping paper is thrown away, everybody's trash cans are overflowing on the side of the street. The bank statements arrive to remind us of how much we spent. And we grudgingly step on the scales to see how much weight we put on over the last month. And then New Year's comes. And rather than simply being just a celebration of a new calendar year, it becomes the promise of a new start, a better year, a chance to not only lose the holiday weight, but to finally get into shape. No, really, this is the year. But again, my point is not to denigrate the Christmas season with appropriate wisdom and caution many of these things can be great fun to our celebrations but notice the movement of the secular Christmas season it's bombastic it's blustery and it's a bit shallow if the secular calendar was a piece of music it would be like the pop songs or jingles you hear on the radio it comes on for two or three minutes you sing along you think happy thoughts and then it's over and you move on to the next song The church calendar, though, is like a beautiful symphony. It's one piece with many movements telling a story. The church calendar begins with Advent, about four weeks before Christmas. And it prepares the church for a celebration of the birth of Jesus, each week focusing on a different aspect of the anticipation of Christ's coming. Christmas Day, however, is only the beginning The church calendar gives us 12 days of celebrating the light shining into the darkness, beginning with the birth of Jesus in the angelic pronouncement to the shepherds in the field, and then culminating in the revelation of Jesus to the wise men from the east. So if the church calendar is like a symphony, we could call this first movement light, or maybe let there be light course, it's entirely appropriate that the church year would begin with the revelation of the light, because that is how the Bible begins. And like a good symphony, where the theme that is introduced at the beginning returns throughout the piece in slight variations, light is a motif that builds and builds as the Old Covenant moves towards the New Covenant. Isaiah chapter 9 is a familiar verse for this time of year that expresses what the light ultimately is. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then in verse 6 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And his birth was the beginning of a new creation. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And that light cried and cooed in his mother's arms on that first Christmas day. That light drew the shepherds to his manger where they fell down and worshiped. That light troubled Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. And that light caused wise men to leave their home in the far east and make the difficult journey to Bethlehem, in order to present the true king with royal gifts. And this final event is commemorated at Epiphany. The textbook definition of Epiphany is the sudden manifestation of the essential nature or meaning of something, or an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. So in other words, to have an Epiphany means to have the lights turned on. If you were a cartoon character, And you had an epiphany, a light bulb would appear above your head and then click on. In 1857, in the town of Williamsport, Pennsylvania, John Henry Hopkins, Jr. wrote and composed what would be the first American Christmas carol to gain widespread popularity, We Three Kings. The refrain of this wonderful hymn emphasizes the light of Christ that drew the wise men to Bethlehem. And it beautifully connects the light to the star that led them on their journey. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Much debate has been made over the nature of the star. Was it an actual star? Was it a constellation? Was it a miraculous heavenly body that had never existed before nor since? Was it an angel? Was it the same glory cloud that had once guided Israel across the wilderness? I tend to think it was the latter. But regardless, the Bible uses the word star to identify it, and with good reason. This star represented the place where the king resided. There is a connection between the star itself and its destination. There are probably a vast number of ways to talk about what the star is and how it connected to Jesus. But I think that old John Henry Hopkins gave us a pretty good description in the second line of his carol. Star with royal, beauty, bright. Royal, beauty, and bright. In the same way that Genesis 1 introduces us to the light and its effect on the darkness... And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the first the fourth day The sun moon and stars were created to be signs to point us towards something else but to what well our first hint is in this passage They are created to rule the night and the day. We're told this twice, in fact. If Scripture is merely just trying to convey the existence of these heavenly bodies, then ruling is an odd way to describe them. However, Genesis 1 is introducing a theme that will recur throughout the great story of the Bible, another note in the Grand Symphony. We see this in God's covenant with Abraham when he is promised an offspring that will be like the numerous stars in the sky and will possess the land, rule over their enemies and bless the nations. Later in the story, Joseph has a dream in which the sun, moon and 11 stars bow down to him. In Isaiah 13, the destruction of Babylon's empire is is described like this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to, dro- to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. The sun, moon, and stars were created to give light, to separate the day from the night. But remember, this was day three. On day one, a greater light it separated the light from the darkness before the stars even existed. Stars are supposed to rule. But they can be snuffed out if they fail to rule righteously. If they refuse to mimic that greater light. Babylon found this out. But this is also true of Israel. As the prophet Jeremiah reminded them. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day. In the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. And if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. And of course, we see this fulfillment in the New Testament. Revelation describes the fall of Jerusalem as the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. This is not a literal event. Despite what our dispensational friends tell us, you don't need to keep track of how many blood moons there are in the sky. But it is a sign that God had kept His promise He made through the prophets. Not only in the destruction of nations who refused to honor the true God, but also in the birth of His Son, the true Israel, the only one who can rule righteously and then will do so forever. As I, Isaiah also tells us in chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is a good reminder for our political leaders today. They are not the highest authority. There is one to whom they must submit and obey, and they are required to rule righteously and with justice. And it's our job to remind them that the one who gave them authority can take it away. Now, there are various ways that we can remind them of this, but it's also important for us to remember that it's our job to pray for them as well, that they would seek Christ, turn to His Word for guidance in their rule, and then obey it. The star of Bethlehem then was indeed a royal star. It was a sign that the king had been born. But the star is also beautiful. Now, I probably don't have to spend as much time convincing you of the beauty of Jesus, but I do want to just point out that this beauty is directly tied to the church's worship. Israel's star, or rather her authority to rule was not tied to her political abilities or any power that she had, but rather to her worship of the one true God. Israel was given possession of the promised land and dominion over her enemies, not so that she could be a political empire like Babylon or Rome, but so that her worship could be the center of the world. Israel was to be a light to the world, a city set on a hill. Her position was such that we, she was to attract the nations to God. Her law was beautiful. Her worship was beautiful. And her treatment of the world should have reflected that beauty. The priestly garments were designed for glory and beauty, the Bible says, representing the worship of Israel. Because worship is where the beauty of the Lord was displayed. The psalmist says, One thing have I asked of the Lord. That I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. And then he says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be, be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. But that beauty went to Israel's heads and they abused it. In Ezekiel 16, the prophet declares the words of the Lord to Israel, saying, You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, and your beauty became his. Like a high school homecoming queen who becomes enamored with all the attention and then ends up giving herself to all the boys who only want to use her for their pleasure, Israel gave up her beauty and her glory for the slums of idolatry. Yet God was faithful. And as Zechariah tells us in chapter 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. But not only is the star royal, the star of Bethlehem is beautiful, but it is bright, and its brightness is of two kinds. On the one hand, it is radiant in and of itself. It is the glory of God. David tells us in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This is what happened to Moses when he encountered God on Mount Sinai. When he came back down the mountain, he had to wear a veil over his face. He had just beheld, or he had beheld just a portion of the glory of God. And his face shone so brightly that the rest of Israel could not look directly at him. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3. In fact, he says that the veil was for Israel's own protection. Because they could not bear the consequences of too much glory. It's the same reason why there was a veil between the Israelites and the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. But Paul goes on to say that this old covenant glory is nothing compared to the glory of the new covenant. The Bethlehem star was the sign of this glory. Gentiles traveled across the desert to behold this glory. That's bold. That's the kind of boldness Paul is talking about in chapter 3. It's the boldness that can only come, as he says in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord and he removes the veil. And this leads to the other kind of brightness that characterizes the glory of God. Not only is it radiant in and of itself, but it's even more so when it shines into the darkness. Now a lot of you kids are about to experience this kind of brightness. Y'all been getting, getting to sleep in during Christmas break, but the second semester's coming, right? And so are those early mornings. The light in your room is not especially bright, but after 8 to 10 hours of darkness and sleep, when mom and dad flip on that light at 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning, it's quite a shock. And so you naturally turn away from the light. You pull up the covers over your head, right? Well, the light scatters the darkness. It overwhelms it. And to use the language from creation, it separates it. There's nothing nefarious about the darkness itself. God made it. He called it good. But it does point toward greater biblical truths. In the Isaiah 9 passage I read earlier, the darkness is symbolic of the old covenant. The light is the glory of the new covenant. But it is also representative, the darkness, of the wicked their evil deeds and their rejection of Christ. The light reveals the wicked deeds of the dark, but it confirms the good deeds of the righteous. This is why Paul can say to the Corinthians, look at our ministry. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Meanwhile, the wicked remain veiled to the gospel in its glory. They are overwhelmed by the light, but they pull the covers up over their head. They deny the source of that light. They want to snuff it out. This is what Herod did when he was confronted with that light. Rather than join the wise men in worship, he slaughtered the baby boys of Bethlehem. In 2 Corinthians... Paul's defense of his ministry that we just read about is a result of the Judaizers attempting to snuff out the gospel. Of course, we encounter this today, right? The darkness hates the light, so the world tries to snuff it out. They demand that we stop worshiping during a pandemic. They accuse us of unkindness and various phobias when we don't support their perversions. They dilute the gospel with with antichrist-isms And of course, this is nothing compared to other cultures where Christians are put in prison and even killed for preaching the gospel. But Paul exhorts us to be confident. For it is not by our own power and ability that we overcome the darkness, but Jesus Christ as Lord, King and Conqueror. And naturally, Paul is confident, right? I mean, he has seen firsthand what the light does to the darkness. That is his testimony. That's his conversion story, right? The killer of Christians is converted or confronted with the literal light of Jesus and is changed into a new man. He goes from the killer of Christians to the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what the light does. When we preach the good news and live out the truth of the gospel, we are that light to the world that brings life to the dead. And we need not worry whether our light will shine. But we can with confidence say with Paul. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Like the wise men in the carol. Westward leading, still proceeding. And the victory has already been won. The wise men... Knew it when they knelt before the baby Jesus. And we know it too, because we are gathered here to worship the one who emptied himself and took the form of a servant, even a little baby, and became man so that we might have everlasting life. So come and dine with your king. Draw near to him and behold his glory. And then you take that glory out into your homes, into your jobs, to your schools. And into your neighborhoods. You are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.